0: This is
1: Pain Reframed. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframed. We have a public service announcement. So Tim and I always love jumping on and doing these PSAs when things come up that we think are really important to make everybody aware of and kind of inform the community. So Dr. Flynn, always a pleasure, sir, to be sitting with you.
0: Always a pleasure, Jeff, coming on a, you know, a spring day in the Rockies, which means it could be anywhere from sunshine and 70 to 30 and snowing. And I think we're somewhere in between today.
1: Yeah, it's a little more dreary than usual right now.
0: Yeah, there's definitely some heavy moisture coming down in the form of rain, yeah.
1: Very good. Well, Tim, I'll jump right in. So for the audience, I think everybody at this point is aware of the CDC guideline for prescribing opioids for chronic pain that was published in 2016. I mean, it was a very, very important piece. It really kind of took a lot of the attention on some of the prescribing practices that were out of whack and really was a wonderful paper to be able to reference to try and rein in some of the irresponsible or unnecessary prescribing and then kind of pathways forward. But like any piece, there's challenges in understanding and implementation. And over the past couple of years, there have been some concerns, I'll say, about the way that the information from that piece has been implemented into clinical practice around the country. And most recently, a new piece has come out sort of highlighting some of those. So Tim, I'll pass it over to you to discuss this new paper and kind of some things we're hoping the audience can take away.
0: Yeah, this new perspective, it was in the New England Journal of Medicine called No Shortcuts to Safer Opioid Prescribing. Dow Hengrich, and Roger Chow are the authors on that. And really, when any guideline comes out, what often happens is the extremes happen and people often are harmed <laughs> from the fact that, that what the guideline says. And, you know, there's been many, many episodes of that. In fact, you could argue that where we are today with the advent of the initial low back pain guideline back in the 90s, which basically said, you know, nothing we do in PT works and at least in the physical agent model and those types of things. And yeah, there's some evidence for spinal manipulation, but many took that guideline and said, well, physical therapy doesn't work for back pain, so let's not refer. And, you know, referral race patterns, as you know, have changed through the years. And you look back at unintended consequences of guidelines, and I would argue that that was part of of what led to uh, where we're at today. But what their premise on this one was, again, some physicians have taken the guideline and with folks that are suffering from opioid addiction, they took the guidelines to say, oh, if they're at high levels, we're just going to rapidly cut off their supply and or taper them at levels that are way too fast, given the current and length of time that they've been on opioids, which in there led to harm. And even to the point of a number of physicians and clinicians basically just didn't want to work with those people that had a high use of opioids. So essentially got them off their panels. And as we've seen that, you know, when someone has an addiction, if they can't get it through the pharmaceutical means, will often seek other means of getting these drugs. And so, yeah, really, that's a big part of this piece was, you know, saying, whoa, 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 we've created some harms by inappropriately applying these guidelines. And that's not what the guidelines stated.
1: Yeah. And I think the piece does a really nice job of bringing up the fact that it's essential that we begin to work together to eliminate barriers to non-pharmacological options. And I mean, I remember back when we talked to Dr. Ted Jones out of Tennessee, that was one of his main points was, yeah, we're seeing that multi-interdisciplinary care, cognitive behavioral therapy, these things work great, but access to them isn't what it needs to be. And I think this article does a nice job of sort of a call to arms that if we're gonna do this the way that it should be done, we need to eliminate barriers to these other options
0: yeah in fact the author stated in multiple places you know this idea of where is the incentives for physical and psychological and multimodal pain treatment and they really felt and they stated that these therapies have not been used available or reimbursed sufficiently that okay the evidence is supporting this but the system isn't supporting the pathway. There's serious problems in the pathway and that from the CDC's perspective really, they're looking for how do we articulate this to improve insurance coverage that incentivizes these psychological and physical providers rather than the pill. And that, as you know, is a huge problem.
1: Yeah. And Tim, that is not a new call to arms. There was the editorial in the Annals of Internal Medicine changing the conversation about opioid tapering. And that was in 2017. And the same things were being said that, again, if we're going to be serious about going a non-pharmacological route, those routes need to be open in the way towards them paved. And I will give credit to the CDC for funding Not to dump a million resources on the group today, but there was a paper published, Non-Invasive Pharmacological Treatment for Chronic Pain, a systematic review that I believe was funded by the CDC done last year to do a really good scan of the evidence as far as, you know, what should be reimbursed better and where should we prioritize the removing of obstacles? And I would encourage anybody, that's a free article. So again, it's non-invasive, a non-pharmacological treatment for chronic pain, a systematic review published in 2018. And if you go there, you can see the write-up in the summary. And Tim, what we see is that for chronic low back pain, chronic neck pain, knee osteoarthritis, hip osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, tension headache, All of those, we see exercise as a primary mode, psychological therapies, primarily CBT, and we see manual therapy playing a role there as well as yoga, acupuncture, things of that nature. Those things have been talked about for how long, Tim, but the reality is it's not easy to access.
0: Not easy to access. And, you know, I do think that if we couple this conversation with the Gallup poll that actually shows that patients or consumers of healthcare actually have a high belief in physical therapy and would rather do that over pharmacological treatments. I think the Gallup poll was last year, was it, looking at that? We often, on the physical therapy side, say that consumers don't know about us and they don't want to access our care. And that's not what these polls are showing. It's the other barriers, the barriers to entry is keeping them from accessing our care.
1: Tim, I love that point. It kind of harkens back to, I remember when I first read some of Joel Belosky's work in 2013, asking people who currently had neck and back pain, you know, what do you think is going to help? And asking that with an understanding from their earlier work that patient expectations are such a critical piece of the outcome, trying to get some of that information from folks who actually have back and neck pain. And to hear them say, I really think manipulation. So spinal manipulation, it was termed having my neck or back cracked, which is kind of not great language in my opinion. But even with that terminology, patients still saying, you know, I'd love some hands-on care, some exercise, getting stronger, getting more flexible. Those were the things that people thought would help them. And we know the expectations there, which often correlates with outcome. It bothers me, Tim, when I hear folks say, but patients don't want to do their part. They don't want to be active. And I don't know about you, man, but I don't tend to see that in the clinic. I'm not saying there aren't some. I mean, don't let me let them all off the hook. There are certainly folks who are looking for a passive fix, but I think a lot of it is they do deep down want to make those improvements. And it's how we position it and how we phrase it that really contributes to their execution.
0: Things I'm continuing to struggle with is, because I agree with you, and it's that pathway to really create this new pain treatment team. Pharmacy is just such a small, small piece of it. Traditional medicine is just such a small, small piece of it. The massive piece of it is that of laying on hands, exercising, and motivating folks through coaching and the like to a better space. So it's a interesting time in a time that I think the people that listen to this podcast are clearly aware of and are making headway to make a difference.
1: Yeah, Tim, I think really that's a great summary of a lot of what's being said and all the pieces that we've cited today is that we need to foster this team-based approach and we need to support each other on the team. You know, when somebody goes to get psychologically informed care, when someone is working with a physician, working on their tapering, we've got to make sure we're elevating their expectations saying, oh, I'm so glad you're going there. That's such a critical piece of the team. And if we all get this person feeling supported from multiple avenues, they're going to really begin to believe that they have everyone around them they need to be successful and i think the moment they start feeling that way this thing clicks
0: yeah and i think with that our role needs to be finding what is the best team member on the exercise because you probably always get those question of you know what's the best exercise to do and i think you know any of us been in this game a long time i said you know It's the exercise you will do. (laughs) So really, what do you like to do? What do you love to do? What would make your life richer if you can envision yourself, how it feels to be doing that activity? I like to start there. And then that kind of shapes which pathway we can build towards and what colleagues that we can refer to.
1: Yeah. And again, the exercise piece can't be overstated because in that most recent systematic review, it's the one that shows up in all the problems. So it just seems to be one of those catch alls that simply needs to be incorporated, pushed, and incentivized from all angles.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just saying on that exercise, I think that the modern, you know, manual therapist really embodies a pain science approach. I think that's really how they. Go about the business of the hands-on care is really this facilitation into an exercise approach, where essentially you you go from some passive movement of a segment to some active and an active resisted movement of a segment to some, you know various isometrics, isotonics, whatever it may be, but it's fluidly moving through that encounter, showing that yeah, you, we get stuff moving, but then you you have to be in charge of building the body around these structures, and if our treatment approach imparts that as these things are integrated and are focused ultimately on that empowerment and the exercise with that patient.
1: I love that you bring that up because I've been saying forever that you know, hands-on care does not foster an external locus of control or dependence. Your poor language does. And it's the way you pitch it and how the patient understands that you're using the laying on of hands or the intermittent passive modality in order to facilitate loading paradigms that ultimately solve the patient's biggest problems. But it's the way that you phrase that. That is indeed the air that you breathe. I think that anybody who says that hands-on care necessarily Fosters external locus of control or dependence, I think, really need to check their own language and presentation style because it's how we frame it, not what's being done.
0: Man, I'm glad you brought that up. I couldn't agree more. Again, it's how we've parsened out a lot of times on the research and, you know, where it's like this treatment is X. But the context, as we know, so many studies, the context of what we do matters. But what we're arguing here is not only the context, but the language and really that rationale that you're saying, you know, this is really the kickstart to get you doing this next level. This is a very temporary kickstart. And within the same session, no, you're doing the work. So let's get to it.
1: Love it. A little and not or to wrap things up. So I know we've dumped a lot on the audience. I want to review really quickly. So the foundational CDC guidelines were in 2016, and the most recent paper that we've been discussing was more recently published, and that is No Shortcuts to Safer Opioid Prescribing in the New England Journal of Medicine. We then hearken back to the Annals of Internal Medicine, changing the conversation about opioid tapering. And I referenced that systematic review that was published last year, non-invasive, non-pharm pharmacological treatment for chronic pain, a systematic review, and that is open access. And that was published last year. The other thing I want to mention is that in all of these, there's some reference to a really cool resource that the CDC put out, and that is a pocket guide for opioid prescribing. And I think that'd be a really cool thing for everyone who's taking questions or fielding thoughts in this conversation to have on them. Again, that's open access and free downloadable, nice little three-page kind of pocket guide on some of these key things that we know and that we should be wary of as everybody's talking about this issue of trying to get folks off of these dependent medications. So just a little bit of a review there, Tim, as far as what we put forward. Any final thoughts from your end?
0: No, I think that's it. And I hope that the listeners reach out to us on social media and please share information. This is how we make a difference. It's through really the knowledge that we collectively have. So thanks for listening.
1: Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.